0: Now on Documentary on talk, producer Pavel Barter tells the forgotten story of how Irish immigrants built a Wild West mining town two miles high in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado, in Cloud City.
1: 1879, four o'clock in the morning, Leadville, Colorado, in the United States. A huge crowd, 200 strong and drunk from cheap saloon whiskey, is making its way down the street. Earlier that night, a man was arrested for stabbing another man in a saloon. Now the mob wants to break into the jail, abduct the suspect, and hang him. Then Marshal Martin Duggan arrives on the scene. He elbows his way through the lynch mob, places himself at the front, draws a pair of six shooters from his pockets, and yells...
2: I'll kill the first man that passes this lamppost.
1: Leadville, Colorado. A former silver mining town 10,000 feet high in the Rocky Mountains. Founded on the labours of Irish migrants. What few people know today, in the US and in Ireland, is the city's indelible connection with Allahies, a small hamlet on the Bear Peninsula in West Cork.
3: We never heard of Leadville, Colorado. There was no mention.
4: I was not at all aware of the incredible proportion that the Irish from Alleyhees and the Bear Peninsula had here in Leadville.
5: The people here lost the living memory of that story, and, and much of that history was forgotten.
1: My name is Pavel Barter, and I've set out to find more about this forgotten history. And in the vicious, bloody, teething stages of this frontier town, A lawmaker from Limerick, kept everyone in order.
2: I'm Marshal Martin Duggan. My friends call me Mart, and so do my enemies.
4: There is a notion of the Wild West, and I have a feeling that if we could time travel back to Leadville, it would fulfill most of those
0: stereotypes for us. Welcome to Leadville.
1: (laughs) Our story begins here. Alahis in West Cork, a small enclave at the end of a peninsula. It's surrounded by mountains and opens out into the Atlantic.
3: What We are looking at here now is the entrance to the mine, the, in, the underground entrance.
1: This is Tiago Sullivan, chairperson of the Alahies Parish Cooperative, which runs the copper mining museum in Alahies. No, you have to go back from here and go around. Just say that way up there is dangerous. Yeah. Down there. Yeah, and that is too. We are,
3: it's approximately, approximately 150 meters of straight into the mountain. We're going in at a level, uh, at the same level all the way. So the further on we go, the deeper we get into the mountain. How old is this tunnel? This tunnel is going right back to the start, to 18, 13, 14.
2: We
1: enter a vast cavern. A pinpoint of light above us indicates the surface. Wow, this feels prehistoric. Yeah. But it's not.
3: It's only 200 years. It's man-made. Man-made. It looks unreal, it looks like a set, but it's very much not. It's very very real, it's really solid rock and man-made caverns and tunnels and colors and water and noise. The priority was production. People were secondary. The
1: workers were expandable.
3: Absolutely correct, Expendable is the word. Because if you fell and you broke your leg, uh, or you got crushed in the crushers, or you whatever, your, your, your arm was broke, or your head was damaged, or you were killed, um, there was somebody else outside the gate waiting to get the job. It's all about production and it's about profits. And for companies, it's always about the bottom line. It's not about, uh, you know, it's just at the end of the year, what is there, to, what's the profit for the shareholder, you know.
1: Besides the accidents, the falls and the flooding, cholera was the biggest killer here. Alahis, once a remote, quiet country area, had turned into a metropolis within the space of a few years. There was no water supply, no sanitary conditions, no hygiene, so disease was rampant. Myself and Tiger out of the mine and travelling the roads where the workers took the copper ore to the beach and the ships beyond.
3: And this is still known, the uh, two names, the back road and Alihees are the cholera road. Why is it called the cholera road? Because it was built specifically to bypass the village uh, because of the bodies that were still lying in the village and the drovers would not go through it because of the disease and the infection.
1: Then, in 1847, the potato crop failed and the famine began. Alighys was not the worst affected because the mines were still productive and people were less dependent on farming. But an exodus had already begun.
3: The same demand for people wasn't there because you had machinery doing a lot of the work that the the people were doing earlier. Two, three years after the famine and the numbers started to flow out of Alighys and from Cove uh, across the Atlantic.
1: The journey across the Atlantic could take up to seven weeks. It was a dark, damp bunks down below under the deck,
3: full of rats and, you know, just picture it. These people had never been at sea. Once they went out of the harbour, they were sick. They were vomiting and they weren't allowed on the deck. So everything happened down below. That journey was
1: a journey of survival. And a lot of them didn't make it. When you hear stories like that, it's impossible not to think of modern parallels of the boats crossing the water from Africa, of bodies being found, people trafficking in the back of vans. It's the same old story. Isn't it?
3: It's the same old story. That is just what I always say. We think we have moved on. We think um, you know that it doesn't happen anymore. It does.
1: Those Irish people, adrift from their homes in search of a better life, for survival, drifted across the United States and many of them were drawn to Leadville in Colorado.
3: Mining was their thing, they were miners, and I think they were going to follow that vocation wherever it was going to take them. And I'd love to know more about the whole Leadville story, which is fascinating.
4: This is one of my favorite spots of Leadville. We are looking at the Sawatch Range with the two highest peaks in Colorado, Mount Massive and Mount Albert.
1: I'm on a mountain valley range looking down on Leadville in Colorado. With me is Kathleen Fitzsimmons, a former school teacher and principal here. Kathleen is the third generation of her family born in Leadville. Leadville, she explains, is two miles above sea level.
4: Between two mountain ranges that have 14,000 foot peaks up and down them. And so Leadville is at this um, elevation of 10,000 feet.
1: Right now, we're about three times as high as Carintill, which is Ireland's tallest mountain. There you go. All over these mountains are the relics of old silver mines, many of them named after Irish nationalists. Robert Emmett, Wolfe Tone, O'Donovan Rossa, Charles Stuart Parnell.
4: Nobody in their right mind lived up here permanently during the wintertime, but during the summertime, you Native Americans would be up here often, and they were displaced with the American West expansion, um, just as with any you know, most of the Native Americans. Um, but it can't be forgotten that this was theirs first.
1: Leadville was initially a gold camp, which operated during the summer months from the 1860s on. But when prospectors began unearthing a heavy black sand in their pans, they realised there was a far more abundant precious metal in the region.
4: And that's what created our silver boom. Within 1877 to 79, the silver rush was on.
1: Martin Duggan's path to Leadville was quite different to the Allahys Irish.
2: I was born in Ireland and emigrated with my parents to the United States when I was a small child. This
1: is Martin's his own words from an interview he conducted in 1885. He's voiced here by the actor Michael Melamphe.
2: We lived in New York and I was about eight years of age when we started west and drove a wagon from Leavenworth in Washington to Denver, arriving in Colorado in the fall of 1860. The teenage Mart had a roving disposition
1: and left Denver when he was 15, driving a wagon with a freight of oxen from Salt Lake City to Montana. In Virginia City, Montana, Mart discovered the entertainment business and worked for a while as a jig dancer in theatres. He was destined for tougher stuff though and packed that in to break wild horses for a living back in Salt Lake City. Returning to Colorado in 1867 he worked on ranches and as a bartender for his brother Steve. He had a reputation as a proficient gunman.
4: He was of medium height but of compact, massive build.
1: Kathleen Fitzsimmons is reading a description of Duggan from a newspaper report.
4: He had a square face with a broad forehead and a pleasing expression. His hair and complexion were light and his eyes blue. He was a man that you would look at twice.
2: I was engaged in mining and freighting in different parts of the state until 1878 when I went to Leadville. I'd only been in Leadville a few weeks when George O'Connor, the city marshal, was murdered by one of his officers whom he was going to remove from the police force. Senator Tabor, who was mayor at that time, called a special meeting of the city council and I was appointed as city marshal.
1: Martin Duggan, a 29-year-old from Limerick with zero policing experience, was now in command of all law enforcement in a chaotic, violent, booming silver mining camp.
6: You either know you're going to be a police officer or you're not. This is Don Lindley,
1: a retired Denver cop who has a house in Leadville and a long fascination with Martin Duggan. So how long was your service? 35 years. Don worked in a number of different areas as a cop. Patrol, Intelligence Bureau...
6: Vice Squad, which was down and dirty, in the trenches, undercover for five years. Immediately after I was appointed, I received a written notice from the
2: roughs to leave town. And if I stayed 24 hours... I would follow George O'Connor. I paid no attention, but took every precaution to always be on my guard as the town was not only full of thieves, thugs and desperate characters, but there was some quarrelsome shooting miners there who had been here a number of years. And they were determined that no newcomer should have any authority over them. What would that
1: tell us about the nature of this man, that he's willing to walk into a job where his predecessor well, got murdered?
6: necessity, probably, to make a living... And you got to remember that Marshall Duggan was predominant. He was, you noticed him. And in those days, you better be noticed, you know, if you're going to be a law enforcement officer. You better have intestinal fortitude and you better be able to take care of yourself and command respect. It 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 goes into
0: pulmonary edema.
1: I'm on Chestnut Street, which used to be the main thoroughfare in in Leadville. Some locals are telling me about altitude sickness, which can be a problem for visitors to Cloud City, as the locals call it.
6: Well, it starts with a headache, and then it gets
1: worse from there. So, so who who am I talking to here? Miss Miss Laura.
0: Hi Miss Laura.
1: They introduced me to Laura Anderson, a fourth generation resident of Leadville.
0: Oh give me a home where the buffalo roam and the deer and the antelope play. In
1: 1877 when the boom started, there were only a couple of 100 people in Leadville. By 1880, the population had reached close to 30,000.
0: Well, well, just Leadville. It was fun. It was The men that were stout enough to work the mines, work the mines, and everybody else would feed them and house them and take care of them. Leadville's just a wild place. Chestnut was the main street. This street was the main street in the beginning. And then State Street was... Was the brothel. Red light district. Leadville was well known for gambling
6: and prostitution and... Money. Mining. See, there were a lot of dance houses, a lot of whorehouses, and a lot of bars. Those are your miners. That's what they wanted. Crawling around in a hole in the ground. Can you imagine that? Point being, after they've done that all day, they want to get in and they want to get screwed and they want to get drunk. And they don't want anybody stopping them. That was the demand. Demand, supply.
1: Miss Laura's grandmother owned the famous Pioneer Club on State Street.
0: When my family was running the Pioneer Bar, they had bullet holes in the walls from Target practicing in there. But there were actually bullet holes in the walls from people shooting at each other too. And then there was just
4: the lawlessness of misunderstandings and everybody having a firearm ready. Mix that with a heavy dose of alcohol and drinking at 10,000 feet and it's not a healthy combination at all. Though a lot of violence could happen um, and did.
1: And this is the situation that Duggan inherited in 1878. Duggan said about cleaning up the place He reorganized the police force, replaced corrupt officers and challenged a judge for dishing out lenient sentences.
6: From my experiences now, especially when I was in the vice squad, undercover, going into bars, havoc, hell. First thing to remember is you're dealing with drunks. They're drunk. They're not going to do what you tell them to do. So you have to do it for them and a lot of people don't understand that. All confrontations in these days would end up in a gunfight or a knife fight or both. They would escalate to that.
1: Within this chaotic environment, the Leadville Irish were mostly on the bottom rung. Sure, there were some, like Henry Gore from County Down, whose brewery was renowned throughout the state, and of course, Mark Duggan, who rose to positions of prominence. But the Irish were mostly miners and common laborers.
4: The anti-Irish sentiment and prejudice was very common, and stereotypes about drinking and big families and anti-Catholic sentiment um, you know, converged with the rise of the Ku Klux Klan in Colorado making it very difficult for Irish to achieve much power.
1: The Irish congregated in the east part of the camp and around the same time as Duggan's arrival another Irishman was making his way to Leadville. Michael Mooney had emigrated to the U.S. from Dublin in 1870. He'd heard about the silver rush in Cloud City and he lived on Sixth Street on the east side and found work here in a local mine. But life at 10,000 feet for Mooney and the other Irish migrants was tough. It was, says Kathleen Fitzsimmons, like a poverty
4: camp of hard workers, being at the whim of the mine owners and the wages that they would set and the hours they would set, you didn't have a voice in that.
5: My name's Jim Walsh. I'm a political science professor. Um, at the University of Colorado, Denver. And we are standing here in the pauper section of Evergreen Cemetery in Leadville, 10,200 feet. A very sacred space where class and social hierarchy reveal themselves in striking ways.
1: When Kathleen Fitzsimmons, who we met earlier, took Jim here to the Catholic pauper section of the oldest cemetery in Leadville, It was a
5: revelation for him. And it took me a little bit for it to sink in. I saw a few headstones, but as I looked around me, I started to realize every hole and gully and um, mound around me were graves. And I knew, it was like it washed over me immediately. This is it. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell these stories you know they make sure these people who are just thrown in these holes that their their voices are known
1: there are close to one and a half thousand unmarked graves here in the pauper's section which made jim wonder who were these people
5: and i started to really think wow this is not anything i was ever taught i've never heard of this um what is this last chapter Something like 8%, 9% are stillborn of all the burials. Something like 45% are under the age of five. And the average age of the total numbers of people here is 22. In the 1880s, rampant disease
1: and harsh living conditions led to high infant and child mortality. People
5: perished, says Jim. From epidemics, from lack of adequate housing, the brutal winters... Um, the poisoned air, the poisoned water. Violence was the leading cause of death for women. Accidents, suicides, homicides. This cemetery is a window into the lives of the poor in 19th century mining camps. And I'm not sure we've, we've ever had that window before.
1: The biggest test of Martin Duggan's career as Marshal came towards the end of his year-long tenure in office. Vigilante justice during this time was rife.
6: Vigilanteism? Probably more predominant than the legal law enforcement.
1: One night in March 1879, when Duggan heard that a mob was going to lynch a man accused of murder, he sprung
2: into action. I want all the available rifles and arms in the city gathered and placed in the hands of the specials. After nightfall,
6: I want these men at points deemed best to protect the public. Pulled guns and threatened that they would kill the people if they tried to get into the jail. It isn't come to sense here, come to Jesus. It's pull a gun and pull a shotgun and say, I'll kill the first man that comes in. And that stops it. Because this mob and these people that are involved in it are only going to go so far and they're not going to jeopardise their life.
1: Later that night, Duggan and his officers snuck the accused out of Leadville so he could be indicted safely elsewhere. Exactly a week later, another lynch mob rose up. Only this time, the accused was an African-American called John Elkins.
2: One of my policemen woke me up in the middle of the night to tell me that a black man... Had cut a man to death in the Pioneer Saloon and the officer had put him in jail, but a mob was forming to take him out and hang him. I got my clothes on as soon as possible and sending the officer to assist in guarding the jail, I started out alone to get ahead of the mob, who by this time I could hear coming down the street. By running, I managed to get ahead of them and halted them on a street corner under a dance hall lamp. I stood in the middle of the street with a cocked revolver in each hand and told them I would kill the first man who attempted to pass the lamppost. I'll kill the first man that passes. There were about 200 men in the mob and I managed to make them understand that some of them were sure to be killed if they persisted interfering with the law. From that time on, they understood that I would not do to fool with. While his officers dealt
1: with the mob, Duggan slipped off to a gun shop in Chestnut Street, woke up the proprietor and secured enough rifles to arm his force. The following day, Duggan snuck Elkins out of Leadville, and he was convicted for murder in a neighboring city. In this incident, the guy who they wanted to lynch was black. Clearly for Duggan,
6: race wasn't an issue. It didn't matter. It was a question of law and abiding by it. That takes a lot of character. Consider the time, the aggressiveness, how easy it would have been to side with the mob. That even adds more validity, in my estimation, to his character. That he could it didn't matter that this guy was black. He, he went by the law. He stood by the law and he did what was necessary. And to think of what that took in terms of courage... To stand
4: up against a mob out on revenge. Even today, individuals struggle
0: with that. And so it seemed to be in his blood. You're listening to Cloud City on Documentary on News Talk.
1: Despite Mark Duggan's heroic deeds, he was not reappointed as marshal when his year long term ran out in April 1879. Leadville slipped back into chaos. When thugs intimidated Duggan's successor into resigning, Mayor Horace Tabor pleaded with Duggan to return.
2: The city council telegraphed me at Flint, Michigan, the house of my father-in-law, where I'd gone on a short visit, asking me to come back at once and take the marshalship, as they did not believe that anyone else could prevent the roughs from ruining
1: the town. And so Duggan became city marshal a second time. He dismissed the corrupt officers within his department and cleaned up the town all over again. By April 1880, Duggan was out of a job again, but by now Leadville was becoming civilized, says Kathleen Fitzsimmons.
4: You had a lot more uh, civic societies and civic organizations that came together to try to help maybe instill a little bit more of community-based values in in the population of Leadville rather than just get rich and go home.
1: One of those community-based institutions was the Tabor Opera House.
4: I'm Tammy Tabor. I'm the tour and building manager of the Tabor Opera House in Leadville, Colorado. In
1: 1882, the Opera House hosted a celebrity guest from Ireland.
4: Oscar Wilde came into town and Horace Tabor invited him into the Matchless Mine for dinner. So he went down in the mine with all of the other miners. They had dinner, and they had lots of whiskey. And Oscar Wilde was quoted as saying, the first course was whiskey, the second course was whiskey, and then the third course was whiskey. And he came to the Tabor Opera House the next morning at 11 and lectured. By
1: 1880, Michael Mooney, the Dubliner who moved to Leadville, was 28 years old and working in a local mine. And what was the nature of the work in the mines like back then? Brutal.
5: Brutal. This is Jim Walsh, who we met earlier in Evergreen Cemetery. There wasn't any what we think of as health insurance. So if you get injured in the mine, it's not the responsibility of the owners. The workers had had enough. They started to secretly
1: organize a union and were waiting for the right time to declare a walkout and launch a strike.
5: It was a response to a lack of a raise over the course of many, many months. And the realization that living and working in such altitude was so dangerous that they were deserving of a little more. Michael Mooney was a natural leader. He didn't ask to lead this. They chose him because he was deeply respected. He was a working-class intellectual, so he lacked a formal education, but the men all understood his deep knowledge. And they walked out of the mine, took all day. They had to go from mine to mine, calling out the miners. And they all came out, 5,000 of them in single file, and in silence, according to reporters. Just a silent um, river of working men with determined looks on their faces.
1: Thomas Duggan, one of Martin Duggan's brothers who worked in Leadville as a miner, put his name to a union demand for a wage rise and a suspension of work in the mines until their demand was complied with. But tension started heating up in Leadville. The business community conducted its own countermarch. And It was sort of a dangerous, volatile situation. Michael Mooney called for the miners' strike to be non-violent. These are the words of a speech Michael Mooney gave during the strike. Voiced here by Michael Malampfy
2: If they can pull the reins We can pull tighter And we are determined to have our rights No matter what comes We can't stand this oppression And we declare it right here The amount of ore taken by each man in a day Is sufficient to pay the expense of the month As they are working 10 hours Fair play is all we want And that we will have
1: Despite Mooney's staunch leadership, a backlash was coming. Horace Tabor, the wealthy mine owner and former mayor, formed a militia force, supposedly to protect Leadville citizens. And he appointed Martin Duggan as a lieutenant on this force, pitting Mart against his own
5: brother. The business community galvanised and organised, convinced the governor to declare martial law. Soldiers arrived in Leadville. Their orders were... Every striking miner is violating vagrancy laws, and is subject to arrest, and forced work on chain gangs building roads. Mooney began to receive death threats. Um, he had to go into hiding. His cabin was surrounded at night to protect him.
2: When we have marched through the streets, we have always been orderly. The citizens tried to get us into a riot but I was not to be caught napping. They were down on us because we are Irish. But if there was a war tomorrow, (laughs) they would like the Irish to help them.
5: The writing was on the wall. There's nothing the men could have done when the the city was militarised to win this strike.
1: The strike had failed. After he finished his second term as Marshal... Limerick's Martin Duggan drifted from one job to another. He worked for a saloon in Leadville, owned by his brother Steve, and operated a horse livery business next to his house. But, as was evident in his decision to support the mining companies during the mining strike, he also annoyed a lot of people. And sometimes his temper got the better of him. In one drunken incident, he turned up at the Tabor Opera House. Helen Adami from the Opera House recounts the story.
4: Dugan walked into the Opera House club rooms and when directly opposite the large mirror, he pulled from his pocket a large forty-five Colt revolver.
0: What are you looking at?
4: And leveling it at his image, sent a bullet through the glass. Stand back! Gloria! He then went across the alley and into the Clarendon club rooms where he put a ball through the mirror of that establishment
2: that's what you get, you Irish bastard.
4: Officer Mahone rushed in a second or two later, and at sight of him, Dugan handed over his gun and started to the jail. For a few days past, Dugan has been drinking quite hard, and his friends declared the man must have been crazy at the time.
1: Despite his propensity for drunken rages, Duggan had a compassionate side. In one newspaper account, he saved the life of a homeless man who had taken shelter at his stable during winter and gave him money for supper and a bed. But Martin Duggan's biggest misstep, a turning point in his life, occurred in November 1880. Okay, so I'm standing on the corner of Forth and Pine. I can see the remains of Martin Duggan's livery, his stables. Duggan was driving his wagon up Pine Street when he bumped into a pedestrian, who later turned out to be Louis Lamb.
2: God damn you, what are you running me over for? God damn you! Why don't you step out of the way? Son of a bitch! You're a goddamn son of a bitch. And if there was someone here to hold these horses, I'd get out and tump you now.
1: So walking up in Fifth, there's light rainfall. and coming up to the Federal Building, United States Post Office. Duggan parked his uh, wagon outside here. Louis Lamb returned. The pair argued some more. Lamb drew out his revolver, and then... <laughs> Duggan had shot Lamb dead. Duggan was arrested and put in prison, saying...
2: I regret this deed happened. I never met the man before yesterday. I didn't know who he was. It was sort of
1: conceded that the act was done in self-defence, and for that reason, he wasn't jailed. And he went on with his life. But this is where it happened. This is where I am now, outside the post office in Leadville, Colorado. This was the fateful place where Mark Duggan killed... Louis Lamb.
5: And the Annunciation sits right here in the heart of the, the Irish district, built, built in 1879. I'm
1: driving through Leadville with Jim Walsh towards the Annunciation Catholic Church, which was constructed with donations from Irish miners.
6: Hey, Kathy. Hey guys, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. Nice to see you.
5: This is where I started doing the research. The church, you see, had records for
1: the unidentified Irish buried in those unmarked graves in Evergreen's Pauper's Cemetery.
5: The records were kept here in this closet, and I was granted access, full access to these records. This, this world of early Leadville and an Irish, a very vibrant Irish community that was centered on, on the church that they built These records are extensive. They don't just tell the country of birth. They they list, in many cases, the county of birth. And that allowed me to break down where these Irish people came from. I estimate 9% of the entire town was born in Ireland, (laughs) which made Leadville, per capita, one of the most Irish places in North America.
1: And of these Irish in Leadville, a third were from a small hamlet in West
5: Cork, Alihees. The ten most common Irish names in early Leadville, and to this day, (laughs) were were Cork names, were West Cork names, Barron names. Um, Sullivan, Harrington, names like
1: uh, Lynch. Jim's discoveries were a revelation back in Allaheys, Tygo Sullivan tells me.
3: We never heard of Leadville, Colorado. This all only came to light by the research and the connections through Jim Walsh.
5: Kathy, we're going to take a quick peek in the oh, church, sure. OK? This church is also a symbol of the, the waves of immigration that Leadville has experienced over the years. In the late 20th century, Mexican immigrants began moving here to Leadville and live kind of in segregated trailer parks on the edges of town. About 40% of Leadville today are immigrants. And um, being Catholic, they they needed a place to worship. And so the congregation was asked to sort of make room for that.
1: Well, they all worship the same God.
5: (laughs) That's right. That's right. And, And they all face similar struggles. After his failed strike,
1: the Dubliner Michael Mooney never worked again in a Leadville
5: mine. He was blacklisted, lived his last two decades in Los Angeles, where he died. We have to view moments like this as just stepping stones. Because every miner, every one of those 5,000 miners, they left that with a new consciousness. So this was a crucial moment in the history of labor in this country, And and the role that Irish immigrants played in the early labor movement cannot be understated.
1: As for Martin Duggan, he was destined for a darker ending. In 1885, his brother Tom, one of the striking miners, died by suicide in the home of Martin and Martin's wife, Sophia. The following year, Duggan gave an interview in which he decried the mythologizing of him as a trigger-happy killer, despite his killing of Louis Lamb.
2: I'm not one of that class who opened a recruiting office for the cemetery, nor was I ever in but one homicide. And that, as you know, was forced upon me one day when I was driving down West 5th Street. I can refer you to any of my old force and they will bear me out when I say that I told each of them to always take chances on their own life before they needed six shooters.
1: So I'm standing here on Harrison Avenue in Leadville. I'm in between a motel and a coffee shop called the Tennessee Pass. This spot used to be a gambling house, a casino, called Bailey Youngson's Texas House. And on April the 8th, 1888, Mark Duggan was in here, and he got into an argument, into a fight inside the Texas House. And the story was, Duggan and Youngson had fallen out, The man had run up a gambling debt, and Youngson had hired Duggan to get the money back, promising a 50% commission. Duggan made several trips to Denver to meet this guy, hadn't paid Youngson and he managed to sort it out so Youngson got paid but for some reason Youngson didn't give Duggan the commission and that's when the bad blood started. It was around 4.30am and that's when people heard shots. Witnesses saw Duggan fall to the sidewalk in front of the Texas house with a bullet in his head. Martin Duggan was dead. So I'm here in Denver, Colorado, Riverside Cemetery. It's the Pioneer's Cemetery. It's got graves dating back to the 1800s. And walking along here is a monument, a memorial, that was erected to Martin J. Duggan, the Marshal of Leadville. The headstone before me is here through the efforts of Don Lindley and his wife, Gail.
6: He did as much, if not more, than Doc Holliday or the Earp brothers, or Bat Masterson, or, you know, some of these, quote, law officers that we know so much about.
1: Right before he was killed in April 1888,
6: they were about to appoint him for a third time as marshal. Yeah, Yeah. if he'd have stayed around, he would have been elected off and on forever. There's no doubt in my mind, because he had the character of a good law enforcement officer. And those are rarities. That's what we are as cops. We're gunslingers. And we'll kick your ass.
1: Leadville, much like Allahy's, went from boom to bust. By the 1890s, when the value of silver had plummeted, those miners who survived its harsh climates moved on to places like Butte, Montana. And eventually their memory became forgotten
5: they carried it with them but it was never concentrated here the people here lost the living memory of that story they lost the living memory of who was buried here
1: I'm with Jim Walsh in the mayor's office in Leadville
2: hi uh, my name is Greg Lobby I'm the mayor of Leadville Colorado and we are high in the mountains yeah our connection with Ireland it turns out is historically is is
1: pretty strong Leadville and Allaheys are in the process of becoming sister cities, he explains.
5: I have a better.
1: So what does this say on us? Maybe Jimmy can read it out.
5: It says Allaheys, Ireland, twinned with Leadville, Colorado. It's a move that Tiger Sullivan and Cork appreciates.
3: It's another step in recognising these connections that were hidden away and latent for so long. It's only right and proper that the relationship, which is, of course, very, very strong, and sadly, largely forgotten that it would be brought to life, because otherwise it was hidden and it was going to lie just like the unmarked graveyard in, in the Evergreen Cemetery, you know? And this is a
1: fantastic story that needs to be told. And that story is being told here at the pauper section of Evergreen Cemetery through the efforts of Jim Walsh and other campaigners a memorial has been built for the Leadville Irish
5: yeah we're looking right at the new memorial and we're about to walk up to it and at the top of the the hill where the spiral walkway leads there's a statue and the names of the dead will be on the four bases on all four sides of the statue. I think the lessons are the A cyclical way that American history—that immigrant communities come for for need, for need for work, need for for, um, you know opportunity for their families, need to to support family back home—and that tradition continues today in Leadville.
7: My dad has um, worked in the U.S. ever since he was um, probably 17.
1: I'm in a car with Gloria Perez, a supervisor for an organization in Leadville that looks after children, youth and families with complex needs. Gloria is from a small town in the state of Zacatecas in Mexico. When Gloria was 10 and her brother six, her father brought his family to the United States.
7: His plan was that maybe we would live here for a little while and learn the language and um, we ended up staying um, our our whole life.
1: While Leadville's Irish migrants work down the mines, their temporary equivalents work in construction and tourism. When she was a teenager, Gloria worked in neighbouring resorts and hotels and eventually got a job as a property manager at a migrant trailer park outside Leadville.
7: I remember one day I stood in front of what's now my house and, and I said, wow, like this is a big house. I wonder who lives here, it must be so nice. And that is my house now. Wow. <laughs> yeah.
1: It was a dream.
7: It was a dream.
1: That came true.
7: That came true.
1: Gloria's family grew up in another trailer park in the outskirts of town. And that's where we're going now.
7: So we are entering um, the mobile home park of Mountain Valley Estate. But when we came, it was a really tiny little mobile home. We would have frozen pipes all the time. Um, we'd have to use a fireplace for heating.
1: Because it gets cold Because here, right? it gets
7: cold, yeah
1: we meet one of Gloria's friends, who still lives in the park. Sorry, what's your name? My name is Sophie Sophie.
8: Sophie Garza. Sophie runs a daycare out of her house. I've lived here in the Summit County area since 1990. And in uh, about, I would say I was like, it felt like me and my husband at that time were the only Hispanics. And then around, I would say about 93, 95, somewhere slowly we were getting people coming from Costa Rica and from different countries and I would say by 97-98 that we had different cultures and a lot of Latinos here in a, here in Leadville you know the other day this is this is more me I was in my thoughts and said well what did they do back in the 1800s because I was thinking I work all day right I'm like oh my gosh you, you wake up see I'm over here you're right and I'm thinking what did they do Are they and my, and my intuition feeling was like they did the same thing so if we think about it, it is still equivalent. We're still looking oh, we're for our livelihood of how we live, how we want to create our lives, how we want to be happy and satisfied with what we have. Well,
1: should we meet your father? Yes.
7: Yes. Oh, Sophie, thank okay. you. <laughs> Good morning, everybody.
0: Hola. Uh-huh. Hola, hola. ¿Cómo Buenos días.
7: So my dad is saying, yeah, for his whole uh, lifetime he worked in stonemasonry until recently when he um, got sick and then he wasn't able to do that type of work. Um, and then he's um, close to retiring now. It's a
1: very specialist work. Sí, muy uh,
7: stonemasonry is typical in like um, for very wealthy people.
1: And when you started coming here, did you miss Zacatecas? Did you miss home? Zacatecas. Always
7: miss Zacatecas. He wants to go back and absolutely like has always missed
1: it. You must be very proud that you have given your family a better life. You must be very proud of Gloria and Gloria's <laughs> success.
8: <Okay. laughs>
7: You're going to make me cry. This is when I cry. D- dice que ha de estar muy orgulloso de haberle dado a su familia una vida mejor.
6: ¿Así? Porque de hecho en Zacatecas no habría esa clase de... De vida para ellos, estaríamos por... So,
7: yes, he's saying that's, you know, he's very proud to have given me and my brother a better life, and because we certainly wouldn't have had the opportunities that we had here to get an education um, back home in Zacatecas, and, you know, even his grandkids, which are my kids and my brothers. Um, that you know he can see his grandkids have a better life
1: and for you Gloria you must be very proud of your father
7: yes I'm super proud of my father and thankful because um I can see that they left everything and that was like you know the sacrifice they made to, so I could have a better life my brother could have a better life and and I think generationally, you know, now I can see my kids, you know, have a better life too.
1: Senor, muchas gracias. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Yeah, no muchas gracias, al contrario, muchas gracias.
1: Mm-hmm. Good luck. The Alahees Irish, like their brethren 140 years later, left their home destitute in search of a better future. They encountered prejudice and xenophobia. They lived struggled, and died too young. They faced the most terrible tragedies and remarkable triumphs. But without them, Leadville would not be the place it is today.
4: It does highlight and make us take a harsh look at ourselves in the mirror of what and how we are treating the poorest of our current society.
5: The lesson I believe of all of this is a more compassionate world where newcomers aren't seen with suspicion that they're they're viewed for their full humanity.
0: Cloud City was produced by Pavel Barter and funded by Commission with the television license fee. For more documentary on Talk, Newstalk, visit newstalk.com.